Welcome to the PeaceWorks Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moles. I'm a pastor and biblical counselor who helps churches and families confront the evil of domestic violence and promote healthy, God-honoring relationships. And welcome back to the PeaceWorks Podcast, everyone. On today's episode, we're continuing our discussions with uh, some of the authors from our brand new book, Caring for Families Caught in Domestic Abuse, A Guide Towards Protection, Refuge, and Hope. And so no big commercial today. We're simply going to invite you to uh, check out the new book, Caring for Families Caught in Domestic Abuse. And my guest today is the author of one of my favorite chapters. Don't tell my other authors that I just said that, but it's true. I have, I have said that there are two chapters worth the price of the book, and uh, one of them is written by my dear friend, Beth Broom. Beth, welcome to the PeaceWorks podcast. Thanks, Chris. Wow. I feel, I'm feeling really good already. You're just getting me ready to be happy, as so, happy as possible. So <laughs> yes, so not traumatized at all <laughs> right. by that, which, how you like that segue, which yeah. uh, listener is the chapter that uh, Beth contributed for our book. It's called Trauma Healing for abuse survivors. And uh, Beth is uh, one, of, one of the authors of our book and a unique author at that. She is not only uh, a minister, care minister at her church, but she's also a licensed therapist that deals uh, in the area of trauma and the founder of the Christian Trauma Healing Network. Is that pretty accurate, my friend? That's that's good. Right. Can you talk to us a little bit about why? I know why, because I was editing the book, but why do you think uh, from your expertise, why was it important to include a chapter on trauma in a book like Caring for Families Caught in Domestic Abuse? Well, I, I will say, you know, even in, in Joy's chapter, when she talks about getting to know the the abuse victim, they are showing up traumatized. She says that in her chapter. I think that's really helpful to recognize that the, the trauma has been happening in this person's life for who knows how long, right? And when we show up on the scene, we're we're getting a snapshot of what they've been experiencing day in and day out. And that trauma has long-term, potentially long-term adverse effects in the person's life. So even as they do the really good and important work of getting safe, working with a team, a team approach in the church and everything that the book talks about, how good it is to have people surrounding the victim and caring for her and giving her what she needs there's a long-term view right there's when we think about the sanctification process and the big boulder obstacles that get stuck in somebody's sanctification road (laughs) in front of them we you know the the idea of seeking to continue to grieve those losses Mm -hmm. in order to heal is hugely important so there is a you know there's kind of like a there's a short-term goal that these are things that needs to happen right now. And then there's long, longer term goals and caring for the the needs of a trauma survivor in their bodies, in their emotions, in their belief systems that get stuck as a result of the abuse. All of that is long-term work. And so I was really grateful to get to write a chapter on that, what we're doing both in the short term, but also as we think long-term for somebody's longevity and thriving. And it, it is so helpful, and I, I obviously commend the book, but in particular your your chapter to our listeners. Let's talk a little bit about the short term because uh, victims of domestic abuse, and this is not just limited to physical or sexual violence, obviously. It can be any facet of coercive control. 
they're presenting oftentimes with um, symptomology or they're presenting with problems that perhaps are directly tied to the abuse, easy to see, or, or maybe mimicking something else. Can you talk to us a little bit about those presenting issues or um, maybe some of the ways that you see um, the symptoms of trauma in your mm. practice? Well, I, the, I like to use an analogy because I think this can be helpful. Uh, there's something in the counseling world that we call the distress thermometer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's, if you think about it like a thermometer that starts at zero and goes up to 100, everybody has this, right? Everybody has a level of, um, so level five on that scale is hopefully where you and I are just about right now, Chris, we're alert, we're awake, we're active, our minds are working, but we're not stressed out, hopefully, <laughs> right? And we're not, we're not like overly stressed out. We're, we're in a good headspace, right? We're right. kind of in the middle there. But what, what happens when somebody is traumatized is that they often tend to go more, more towards the extremes of that thermometer especially when hard things happen, when if they get triggered, if there's a moment of distress that that might necessarily for somebody who's in a good headspace, perhaps something happens that pushes us into a six or a seven, often with trauma survivors or with victims of abuse there, it's pushing them up into an eight or a nine, you know, 80, 80 degrees or 90 degrees on that thermometer, or they're shutting down, they're going down into like, two or three kind of mode, which is a more of a kind of shut down and numb way of presenting. And so we see that all the time in our counseling offices, you're seeing it as a, you see it as a pastor, right. the advocate is seeing it, we're, and it's good to just be able to notice what's happening there. And I think one of the things I know you and I've talked about this is uh, women who finally feel and I'm saying women generally, obviously, right. men have this as well, but somebody who finally works up the courage to come and sit down with their pastor or their care minister or, or a deacon, they may be having some of these symptoms that are pushing them into the outer limits of their distress. And it's pretty easy, right, for us to go, oh, this, this per person's story isn't making sense. They must be lying. Or uh, that this person's all over the place emotionally. They're probably blowing things out of proportion. When really what's happening is the threat response yeah. is being activated. They feel, they feel threatened. Even if you are not a threatening person, they feel, they feel danger. So those responses are happening and it's good for us to learn what they are and pay attention and to be able to approach them with compassion yeah. where we're not just making assumptions, especially moralistic assumptions, slapping a sin label on something that's actually perhaps someone's body and emotions responding to feeling threatened in some way. I think sanctifying that reality is helpful too. And I really appreciate it in your chapter. You, you invite us as the reader to place ourselves in, I think it's Isaiah 61. It's the, it's the passage that Jesus reads a portion of yeah. in his initial public ministry that the, the idea of the good news being preached and handed and even cultivated among the poor and the marginalized mm -hmm. and the oppressed and those needing freedom. So I really appreciated the reorienting that you do kind of in the middle of your chapter to bring us back to a scriptural reality. Again, it's not sin hunting. We're not labeling at this point. We're just inviting everybody to, for lack of a better word, regulate according to the scriptures. And then um, that positions us to provide real hope when a person is prepared to hear, learn, grow, change. And you refer to this type of work as ministry throughout the chapter. Could you walk us through maybe some of the ministry expressions that uh, this book will train us in as, or at least call us to as we're working with mm -hmm. victims? 
Well, the first one is the ministry of presence. And I think I've, I've heard that term a lot, especially being in church-based ministries, it's a ministry of presence. But when I think about the stories in the gospels of what Jesus did yeah. on the day to day, he was fully present with people and fully present with himself, like in his body and orienting to what is the father's will in this moment? What, am, what is he calling me to do right now? And what happens so often when we encounter stressful situations, I mean, let's just be honest, we often will pop into the future or back to the past and we'll be pulled in one of those two directions when really, man, what the Lord is calling us to is to be fully present. And you know, Chris, like if we're in the middle of a conversation and I pull out my phone and start scrolling, I'm not with you and you know that and it's frustrating. But even on a, a grander scale, people can tell if I'm in a ministry scenario and I'm actually trying to think about what I'm gonna say next. Wow or I'm thinking about like my next meeting or my lunch appointment, that comes out, it comes across. And so thinking about modeling our work after Jesus himself, yeah. who was fully willing to just sit on the, at the side of a well and talk to a lady that he didn't sure. know, or you know, reach out and actually touch someone who has a disease. Yeah. Th- these are things that we, we can model our work after that. And so I spent some time in the cha- chapter yeah. just talking about that, how good it is to be fully present. Mm-hmm. And it also helps to protect us, I think, when we're fully present from doing that kind of quick assumptions or judgments, yeah. because th- that's a future-based way of thinking, right? Or even a past-based, like, oh, they must have done such and such, and that's why they are what they are today. Kind of like the guy that asked Jesus, why does this guy have a blindness or right. whatever? Did he did he sin? Who sinned? Yeah, him or his and that's parents. a path. It? Yeah, it's a it's we're we're popping back to the past instead of no, he is where he is so that that God could be glorified today, yeah. right now, as he's healed. And so um, that's a really just an important aspect of what we get to do, and that's hard. Yeah, it is. Like it's hard for us to train ourselves to do that because even culturally, <laughs> nobody nobody wants to stay present. It reminds me, we were talking about this at, at church this past weekend. There's uh, that great story where. Jesus and his disciples and Luke says a large crowd were heading from one town to the next. And at the same time, um, a widow and her recently deceased son were being carried out of that town with a large crowd. So these two Mm -hmm. large crowds are converging on each other, probably, you know, at least a couple hundred people, I would assume are converging on each other and one grieving and one celebrating as one's bringing life into the village, the other's bringing death from the village. And Jesus pauses and direct, you know, directly addresses the widow immediately and says, mm. don't cry. And the funny thing about the scriptures is it has a period and an exclamation point. The only imperative he gives is when he leans over to the dead body and tells the dead body to come back to life. That's the imperative. Mm. And, and then you go from these two opposing crowds to one unified crowd really in part because what you're saying, Jesus chose to be present where he was needed as opposed to placating to the two crowds, either grieving mm-hmm. with the mourners or celebrating with the followers. He chose to see a person in their distress. Mm-hmm. And it's it's really hard to do that anyway, but it's even harder to do that if we don't possess a, you know, we, we think about the fruit of the spirit, of the, the patience and the gentleness and the kindness that it takes to be in a moment and in even when we feel distressed to be able to settle into that and recognize hey we're just joining this person and bearing bearing burdens you know it's hard to do and there are plenty of wonderful people who do ministry all the time that feel very uncomfortable in that space yeah. 
I think it's peculiar that we're, at least for some of us in vocational ministry and maybe in the biblical counseling world, trauma is almost like a a dirty word or a boogeyman word. (laughs) And, And yet what you're prescribing in the book, first, the ministry of presence is a very gospel centered thing. And then secondly, I believe you call it the ministry of stabilization, uh, also has all these incredible scriptural tie-downs that keep us grounded to biblical truth. Can you talk just a little bit about the ministry of stabilization? So I love to go to places in the Psalms, and particularly I will choose Psalm 23, the first three verses Mm -hmm. of Psalm 23 that talk about the reason that David doesn't have to be anxious why the Lord is my shepherd. Sure. Here's what the shepherd does. He stabilizes us. He, he brings security and rest and re- restoration to our souls. And we need this so desperately and only he can do that to the full effect. And again, we get to, we get to kind of, in my mind, a lot of times I'm thinking, okay, here's this beautiful metaphor in Psalm 23 of, of being lie, lie down in green pastures yeah. and walk beside still waters. What, what is this, what could this look like? with me, how can I help create that for the person I'm sitting with? And so often it has to do with my demeanor, you know, just how I'm showing up uh, in that patience and gentleness and all of that. But also even just, man, if you're, if you're pushing again, to use that analogy of the thermometer, if you're pushing outside your sort of middle space there and you're becoming overwhelmed, panicked, even like anger to the point of rage, things like this, then I, I, Part of my goal is to help. What's the green pasture look like for you? You need a settling, you need to get settled. And I love to do that with, with my clients because we get to just experiment. What, what helps you? Is it taking some deep breaths? Is it visualizing yourself in the green pasture with the Lord, your shepherd standing there with you? What, what kinds of things help bring you back into an active thinking space, but you're not overwhelmed? Or if you're shutting down, how do we sort of bring you back up into an active state where we can actually do some good work? So, so that stabilization, I mean, I think, you know, that word again, could be construed in certain ways for certain people. I'm not, I can't make you be stabilized, but I can certainly like give you some ideas, you know, some things that work for other people (laughs) to help you kind of get back to a space where you can be fully present. Because again, when somebody's destabilized, they often are, are, are jumping into the future or into the past. So we want to be back in the present moment. Yeah. Very good. And there's more in the book, uh, listeners, uh, including the Ministry of Wisdom, and then also some other uh, tips and tools and, and I wouldn't say tricks, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> aspects of ministry that you too can participate in. And certainly it's worth uh, investing in the book, Caring for Families Caught in Domestic Abuse. Uh, Beth, you take some time at the end of the the chapter to talk to the reader about the importance of collaboration and consultation and resources. Can you talk just a little bit about uh, first from maybe put your church hat on what collaboration and, and consulting looks like? And then secondly, uh, give us a little bit more information about the Christian Trauma Healing Network and how that organization can serve our listeners. Hmm. Well, I love how Kirsten in her chapter talks a lot about, well, and then you guys have a chapter all together where you talk about the collaboration on a te- in a team approach. Mm-hmm. So that is such a huge element. I can't tell you the number, you probably have too, the number of people that I've talked to who they are really trying to Lone Ranger, not even necessarily because they want to, but they don't have other people to collaborate with. They don't in their church setting. And so I'm always encouraging 
look for those folks. Even if you have to be on a Zoom call with them, you're looking for people that can encourage you and help equip you and case study with you and things like that so that you're you're experiencing that, but not just for the sake of the ministry itself, but also for our own souls. I mean, we are called in scripture to, to not neglect meeting together mm -hmm. and to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to each other. The purpose of that being that we help keep each other encouraged yeah. and keep ourselves in a state of not growing weary and doing good, but rather feeling continually compelled by the love of Christ to, to offer ministry and love to others. And so we do need that collaboration. We also, man, if I think about uh, ministry, uh, missionaries that we support, mm -hmm. some some of the missionaries we support have, uh, you know, a financial support team, they also have a prayer team. Right. And I often wonder as ministers, man, I, I think some of us, we, we need prayer teams too. Like we need some folks that commit to pray over the ministry that yeah. we're doing. This is hard, hard work. There's a lot of dare I say, spiritual warfare that's oh, yes, happening, yeah. right? In the in the work of caring for families caught in domestic abuse. And so who's praying for me consistently? Who's asking me good questions? You know, like who is the person or people in my life that will say, hey, you know, I, I it seems like you're kind of fading away from the community or I haven't heard from you in a while. Or um, man, I have one friend that she came to me one time a couple years ago and the words she said to me, she said, hey, I think you've disappeared. Mm. And she wasn't saying that I hadn't been around. She right. said just mentally, emotionally, when we're together, it's like you're not with me. Yep. That's so helpful. We need people like that that can do that in our lives. Yeah. Um, and so that's just an important aspect. I talk a little bit in the book as well about just the self-awareness that is yep. that is only possible when we spend time in God's presence. Yeah. Like we, when we are aware of God, we are more aware of ourselves. We are, that's the definition of humility, right? Seeing ourselves correctly. It's really hard to do that if you don't, if you're not in God's presence in prayer. And so that's a huge aspect, obviously, of, of the longevity of us being able to do what we do. And so to segue into Christian Trauma Healing <laughs> Network, that's a lot of what we try to offer is collaboration we we provide resourcing and training and some equipping for people all across the spectrum who are working with victims and survivors so whether you are working as a lay minister in your church or you're the pastor on staff or you're uh you know a, a professional counselor or an advocate we're offering not just tools and content although there's a lot of that but we also offer the opportunity to actually get together with other people yeah who are doing this kind of work to just be able to encourage each other, pray for each other, get some ideas when we feel stuck, things like that. Um, it's just a really important thing that we're trying to set up is that's why it's called a network. Right. So we're trying to network um, with each other to be able to gain whatever we can to be able to help people who are suffering in these ways. Very cool. So be sure listener to check out Christian trauma healing network and also pick up your copy of caring for families caught in domestic abuse. You can find that at New Growth Press or Amazon.com or wherever you buy your books. I'm sure they'll have it. Uh, thank you, Beth, for being part of the PeaceWorks podcast. Thank you, Chris. All right. And thank you, listeners, for joining in. Be sure to rate, review, subscribe. Let the platform you're listening on know how much you appreciate the PeaceWorks podcast. Until next time, friends, God bless.